Welcome to this, the second episode of the Great Wealth Divide podcast series from WBGO Studios. I am your host, Dale Favors. Through this weekly platform, we'll discuss the racial wealth divide between Black and Latinx communities versus white communities in America. Today and in subsequent programs, we'll look at why these disparities exist including the historic and continuing factors such as the structural barriers created by systemic economic racism and how they have caused and continue to perpetuate these huge disparities. It is estimated that our economy would grow by another $5 trillion over the next five years. $5 trillion over the next five years, again, would benefit everybody throughout the U.S. We all win when black and brown communities are given the opportunity to achieve stability and prosperity. That was Joseph Lightman Santa Cruz, Executive Director of Capital Area Asset Builders. You'll be hearing more from Joseph a little later. Today, we will be discussing building wealth in Black and Latinx communities through entrepreneurship. We will have this discussion with three passionate thought leaders talking about how savings, understanding the banking system, education, access to critical investment capital, and mentorship are key contributors to successful entrepreneurship. When combined, these components can establish a significant pathway to wealth creation, as well as give us an opportunity to explore how the work that these individuals are doing is leading to greater economic outcomes for those involved. As we get underway with today's episode, I encourage you, our listeners, to contact us with your questions and or comments. Our email address is tgwd at wbgo.org. Or you can call us at 212-994-9583. That's 212-994-9583. We look forward to hearing from you. We thank J.P. Morgan Chase, who is proud to sponsor the Great Wealth Divide podcast series. J.P. Morgan Chase has committed an additional $30 billion to address the key drivers of the racial wealth divide and to reduce systemic racism against Black and Latinx people. Learn more about what they're doing to address these issues and provide solutions at jpmorganchase slash path forward. Listeners, I have to tell you, our panelists today lead organizations at the forefront of creating opportunities for Black and Latinx communities, specifically entrepreneurship, financial education, and access to capital. Each brings their own intriguing personal stories based on life experiences that brought them to the important work they are doing. On the panel today are Kenneth Eby, Executive Director and Chief Development Officer for Black Entrepreneurs NYC. Jill Johnson, CEO of the Institute for Entrepreneurial Leadership. And Joseph Lightman Santa Cruz, CEO and Executive Director of Capital Area Asset Builders. Let's first go to Jill Johnson, CEO of the Institute for Entrepreneurial Leadership, Eiffel, as it's known. Jill, let me ask you, what life experiences motivated you to engage in the work that you are now doing? My journey started from the time that I was very young, watching my parents in their business and seeing the struggles and challenges that they had. They were successful business owners. Um, but hearing them talk about cash flow issues and if a customer paid a little bit late, um, employee issues, all those sorts of things, 
that was when I learned what it was to be a small business owner and how tough it is, especially if you don't have capital to address some of those challenges. Uh, Fast forward, then I had the opportunity to start my professional career as a financial analyst at Goldman Sachs in mergers and acquisitions. Uh, You know, two-year program, I did ended up doing a third year. And I saw the other side of the coin where people were uh, starting businesses, growing and scaling those businesses and extracting a tremendous amount of wealth. That was not something that I saw among black business owners. It's not the mindset that my parents had with their business. And that really is what has propelled me to want to make sure that people are looking at entrepreneurship as a path and as a vehicle to building wealth. Thanks, Jill. Let me turn to Joseph Lightman Santa Cruz, CEO and Executive Director of Capital Area Asset Builders, based in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joseph, what inspired you to lead the charge at Capital Area Asset Builders? As the outcome of a single mom household that faced significant challenges uh, from the very beginning, and somebody who went on to start 15 years professionally working for the benefit of ultra high net worth families, I decided that it was time to apply those best practices and that knowledge for the benefit of those on the opposite side of the socioeconomic spectrum. And that's when I got started in enabling low to moderate income families, primarily Black and Latinx families, to achieve financial stability. So now I am the proud CEO and Executive Director of Capital Area Asset Builders. Thanks, Joseph. Our last guest is Ken Eby, Executive Director and Chief Development Officer for Black Entrepreneurs NYC also known as BENYC. This initiative was created in 2019 by the New York Department of Small Business Services. Ken, can you share some of the things that led to this work that you're doing and how critical that work is? I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, raised in a a household where my two parents, uh, immigrants from Cameroon, really emphasized the importance of of industry, of course, of hard work, education, and really self-determination. And this was a message that I saw echoed as well in my community, community of of Africans and African-Americans and Caribbean-Americans. And actually, you know, I was fortunate to have a a multi-ethnic, multi-racial community that helped bring me up. And so going to schools in Chicago, private schools, I was able to see families that were quite well off. I, I never struggled for, for anything, but I, I was able to see both sides of the coin, both in my community where uh, we were raised and, and, and also in my school. And, and I, I was really able to, I think, understand that at the end of the day, what really provides a safety stability is, is really the, the shot to have equity of opportunity. And, and so what I see is, is really my, my life's work whether it's been in law or uh, politics or in government, and also as an entrepreneur myself, is how do we create more space to provide equity for the talent that exists equally in all communities to rise to the top and to create tangible benefits and and life chances? And so uh, this has really been a cause of mine that I think in various phases of my career, uh, I touched upon uh, when I was in corporate law in public affairs and, and in my, my current practice as an entrepreneur, I've touched upon it, but I think this particular opportunity at this point in time, after the summer of what many referred to as, as racial reckoning, it really crystallized my focus on, on doing this work 
at the highest levels of city government in trying to, to kind of galvanize all of the resources and the relationships that I've been fortunate to have to really uh, help drive equity of opportunity, particularly for the Black community. Uh, the common thing amongst you as a group is you're exposing the historically underserved communities through providing insight into habits and practices needed to be successful financial stewards, business leaders, family members, and entrepreneurs. The increase in the number of Black and Latinx-owned businesses that can gain access to growth capital, build scalable organizations that establish wealth in these communities is essential to the growth and understanding of how we all can move forward. And I want to start with Joseph Lightman Santa Cruz, CEO and Executive Director of Capital Area Asset Builders. Tell us a little bit about your organization. What type of communities are you serving and what specifically are you focusing in on? Uh, thank you, Dale. Great to be here. And I would like to uh, recognize uh, your leadership on this topic and really recognize the amazing leadership WBGO is having to specifically focus on such a timely and extremely important topic that unfortunately for too long, we as a society have decided not to pay attention. So it's great to be a guest on the second episode of this podcast and specifically answering your question, Capital Area Asset Builders, better known as CAV, is a 25-year-old nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C., and our mission is to create opportunities for low to moderate income individuals and families throughout the nation's capital to build financial security, savings, and wealth for the future. We focus on intentionally and strategically addressing and seeking to minimize the racial wealth gap that primarily has traditionally kept both African-American, Latinx, and other immigrant communities either in poverty or have not provided them with the opportunity to achieve either financial stability or prosperity. So again, it's uh, great to be here. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. And one thing for sure is that in this nation, being the wealthiest nation in the history of humankind, we all know that there is sufficient wealth to enable everybody to achieve their God-given potential. What we truly have to question is, is there an interest and is there a will to enable everybody to achieve prosperity? I like that. Tell us a little bit about what, what are some of the exercises or practices that you guys are performing to expose those underserved communities to some of the habits of building wealth? We strongly believe in providing both access to knowledge and access to capital. Um, I strongly believe that we cannot direct service anybody out of poverty. We need to provide everybody with knowledge, with tools, and then with financial resources. So how we translate that at CAV is we have um, we make available what are called match savings programs. Uh, we were one of the first organizations in the nation 25 years ago to offer a co-investment between a nonprofit organization and a low-income family that aspire to build wealth, either through first-time home ownership, launching a small business, or paying for post-secondary education. So we actually give money as a co-investment. It's not a loan. Uh, it's a uh, grant that is a tax-free uh, donation given to the individual. Specifically, folks are able to use that money to build wealth and be able to provide a better opportunity for the next generation. So we have programs that match a $1 for every dollar saved by our clients to as much as $8 for every dollar saved. And this is a co-investment, as I like to put it, 
because we all benefit throughout society when low and moderate income families are lifted out of poverty. And again, we are very intentionally focusing on lifting African-American and Latinx families out of poverty so that they can be given the opportunity to achieve financial stability and prosperity. Those programs clearly support the communities by educating them on one of the first steps of building wealth, which is disciplined savings. Can you tell us some more about the other programs that CAB is involved in? We also provide direct cash transfers, and we are also really big into making sure that black and brown communities know that they need to participate in the mainstream financial services system. They need to be fully banked. They need to be fully credit visible. They need to be uplifting their credit scores. They need to be uh, um, creating emergency savings fund. They need to be saving for retirement. And all of these components, Dale, are not from a paternalistic perspective of telling people what to do, but we strongly believe in providing dignity and trust in our clients to share with them what are the best practices of folks in affluent and high net worth circles. How is it that they're able to generate wealth? How is it that they're able to pass on that wealth to the next generation? So I believe in having as many arrows in the quiver in order to provide an opportunity for our clients. I think that's amazing. Being intentional about helping people understand the importance of being involved in the mainstream banking service system, as well as building trust with them, I think is critical to their understanding of how to fully get a piece of this this economic pie that's out here. Give us some examples of individuals who've been through your program that have gone on to be able to possibly save for college, buy a home, start a business. Do you have any examples? To give you one specific uh, example, um, great single African-American mom we work with in Washington, D.C., we started focusing on the basic relationship with the banking system. She set up a bank account. By doing so, she saved $800 on an annual basis. That's the cost of being unbanked in the nation's capital. She was also able to increase her credit score. By doing so, she was able to save hundreds of dollars on an annual basis by paying less in interest on her credit cards. She was then able to set up a savings account with us through our match savings account. Uh, she was able to benefit from a $4,000 co-investment we provided. And then she was also able to set up other uh, investments through tax credits that she was able to accumulate from other partners. And with that together, she was able to put a down payment for a home. And now for the last five years, Ion has been a proud homeowner. And more importantly, her two underage kids are now growing up knowing that their family is a proud African-American homeowner in the nation's capital. So that legacy building, that wealth creation has started to take place. And that is the type of success story that we seek and we aspire to replicate throughout this tri-state region of Maryland, Virginia, Washington, D.C. And we also aspire to bring that to other parts of the country as well. I, I just you know, can't say enough how important it is the work you're doing at the grassroots level to share with un individuals the process of saving, budgeting, planning, and understanding how money works and understanding how to build wealth based on home ownership. Clearly, banking is at the center of all of that. Absolutely. And, and something you were just mentioning right now, uh, Dale, is that more than 60 million folks throughout the United States do not have a relationship with the banking system. So they may be either fully unbanked 
have not had a checking or a savings account or are underbanked. They may have a checking or a savings account either at a credit union or a bank, but still rely on alternative financial services to either cash a check or send a wire or be able to pay rent through money order. Being unbanked or underbanked is significantly expensive in this country. And when we look at the racial wealth gap, we see that white consumers throughout the U.S. are unbanked or underbanked at about 5.4%, according to the FDIC. But when we look at black and brown communities, those numbers rise over 14% for Latinx and close to 17% for African Americans. So right there, we know that there is significant wealth extraction happening because of the lack of a relationship with the banking system. And that is the very basic core component of having the ability to build wealth, right? We cannot request a mortgage. We cannot request a small business loan. We cannot get a financial product if we do not have access to a basic checking or savings account. So that's what we do at CAP. Before we focus on the long-term asset building or wealth creation, we start with the basics. Let's make sure that all of our clients have access to um, bank or credit union account. Let's make sure that everybody develops a budget. Let's make sure that everybody embeds savings into their behavior. And then let's start financially incentivizing folks to focus both on the short-term situations and the long-term aspirations. So again, we need to ensure that we provide both financial knowledge and access to capital. Specifically, Sharon, with you, uh, we have had folks who have lived the full spectrum, the full continuum of housing, all the way from homelessness through affordable housing into private home ownership. And that's where we pride ourselves to be able to work together with our clients to have them move up the ladder so that they live a better life. And even more importantly, they live a legacy and that wealth transfer to their children. So that's whether first time home buying, launching a business, or being able to be the first ones to go to college. And of course, we all know that the higher one's educational level, the higher the income that can be generated throughout their lifetime. Joseph, thank you. Those are crucial steps towards bridging the wealth divide and gaining a better understanding of how to access capital. I know, Jill, your organization, the Institute for Entrepreneurial Leadership, really focuses in on helping those who might be coming into the world of entrepreneurship and helping them grasp and understand the tools necessary to succeed. Can you tell us a little bit more about your organization? Sure. And it's great to be here. Thanks again for having me because this is a really, really important conversation. Um, and we need to be amplifying the message um, tremendously. So our organization, the Institute for Entrepreneurial Leadership, um, is an organization that my father and I started together in 2002. My parents had a newspaper publishing business, so I grew up in that world and understanding the challenges that business owners face and uh, you know, hearing about cash flow and employee issues and, you know, vendors, uh, customers rather paying late, all those sorts of things. And so when we started the organization, it was really about supporting economic development through entrepreneurship. But over the years, you know, we really became experts in creating and implementing small business programming in support of those larger economic development objectives. And we've done a lot of work over the years, training people in entrepreneurship, helping them to figure out how to create more runway for themselves, staying in business. And I think it's all really good work. But about three years ago now, I really decided that I wanted to pivot my own focus and the work of our organization to really addressing issues at a systemic level. 
again, I think that, you know, helping individual entrepreneurs is terrific. And there are a lot of great organizations that do it. But we have moved our focus to that systemic level, because I think that no matter at this stage, how much people save and they are doing all the things that Joseph talked about, that's still not going to get us to the level of capital that we need in order for businesses to start the way that they need to start and to be able to grow. And then when you look at those that have that potential to scale and exit, that becomes even more challenging if they're not starting off with the proper capitalization from the beginning. And so, you know, we envision a future that is inclusive, one in which people from historically marginalized populations have equal opportunity for success. Doesn't mean that success is guaranteed, but it means that, again, as Joseph said, there is so much capital in the United States of America that no business should run out of runway because they don't have access to capital. Jill, with your pivot to systemic solutions, what is your organization's mission and focus? Our mission is really around eradicating the systemic barriers that prevent people of color from being able to access the knowledge networks and capital required for entrepreneurial success and wealth creation. We have three programmatic areas of focus. The first one being relationship capital connections. For us, that is so important. And Dale, you're super well connected. You know everyone. And you know the power in that, right? Being able to pick up the phone and call someone, um, ask for some advice, connect people. Well, that is what is missing for so many entrepreneurs. They are not connected. They don't have the ability for someone to open the door and to um, you know, help them to get a contract. Mm-hmm. So we believe that that is just super important. So relationship connectivity. Next uh, area is investor inclusion. We launched an initiative called the Making of Black Angels. And the focus is really on increasing diversity and inclusion within the angel investing sector. We all know that investment is about personal relationships. And it's that angel space, you know, after personal savings and friends and family, it's that angel money that helps people to get on an on-ramp to other forms of capital, whether that is loan uh, debt capital or venture capital. Often it requires that someone start with friends and family money and angel money. Well, Dale, problem with that is, is that because that's relationship capital, if you don't have people that are part of your network who are inclined to make investments because that's what they know, they're aware of this as an asset class and, you know, it's just part of their normal uh, portfolio activity, then you're, you're left out and there's no opportunity to get that sort of capital. And again, in the black community, the Hispanic community as well we see that there are just not the number of investors there and therefore it creates a void and a gap for the entrepreneurs. We'll be back with Jill Johnson shortly. The Great Wealth Divide podcast series is sponsored by J.P. Morgan Chase, who has made a global commitment to breaking down barriers to drive inclusive economic growth. They're investing in communities across the country Uh, communities that we all have come from, that we all have family in, uh, to create economic opportunities. They've committed $30 billion over the next five years to advance racial equity and to address key drivers of the racial wealth divide. So we appreciate our sponsor and we thank you. And you can always find more about our sponsor, JP Morgan, at jpmorganchase.com slash path 
forward. Jill, you've talked about challenges being faced when it comes to gaining access to capital by Black and Latinx communities. What about more specifically the challenges faced by women entrepreneurs? What are their realities? Over the last 15 years, there's actually been a lot of movement with women, white Mm -hmm. women. I will be very clear about that. The more that have become angel investors has correlated to more white women receiving angel investment capital. We want to do that same thing in the Black community. And then our community building small business initiatives is the third program area. And that really is about small business capacity building for businesses that are Main Street type businesses. While these companies may not be scalable and there are a lot of people who write them off, let's be very clear that there is a lot of wealth that is created in the white community by entrepreneurs who have million dollar companies. $3 million companies, $5 million companies. In the Black and Hispanic communities, we don't have enough of those types of entrepreneurs. It's those entrepreneurs that are generating not only great incomes for themselves, and thus they're able to save more and invest more, but um, these are the entrepreneurs too who are able to be friends and family money. When we see people with these higher incomes, you know, and again, if you have a business that's a couple million dollars, you're moving into potentially higher income brackets. You're able to access better education, better healthcare, et cetera. You are creating jobs in your business that allows others to do the same. So that is what we are about as an organization. It really is, again, looking at systemic level barriers. One thing I want to make clear also, something that we decided in a recent summit event that we had was that we were no longer going to refer to these entrepreneurs and to these populations as just being um, underserved or diverse. Because I don't really know what diverse means. I like to be real clear in, in terms of who we're talking about. We are using the terminology excluded because that is what these populations have been. They have been excluded from the capital mainstream and from being able to uh, acquire and build assets for centuries. And so, you know, we want to make sure that everyone's real clear. It is not that there is a lack of inclusion or underrepresentation through any fault of black and brown entrepreneurs. It is because they have been excluded. Jill, you make some very, very good points here. And I want to just bring to everyone's attention how important it is to follow that journey that entrepreneurs go through. You you talk about first building the business, managing through cash flow, which is extremely important because every business has to go through that process of figuring out how to make payroll, how to pay the daily bills, how to deal with the receivables as well as the payables. All those things are important. And you finally get potentially that business to a point where that isn't as much of a concern, but you continue to move through the process of looking for capital that allows you to scale that business. And maybe you get to a point where you eventually are able to sell that business. But as we look at the challenges that entrepreneurs face, one of the biggest challenges is access to capital. And 
our previous podcast, Mark Morial, president of the National Urban League, specifically addressed these issues. Here's what he said. Two-thirds of all wealth in the United States comes from intergenerational transfers. The United States narrative is based on this Horatio Alger, rags to riches, which uh, is promoted as the rule rather than the exception, when it's the exception rather than the rule, of people who are born into great poverty and achieve great wealth in a single generation. I wanted to bring back some of the data that we had discussed in our previous podcast when we were talking about family income and specifically about the median income for black families, which is roughly $17,000, and Latinx families, which the median income is roughly $20,600, while our white counterparts have median income of over $170,000. It becomes pretty difficult for any entrepreneur to approach family about investing tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, into a, a business venture or idea when there's just not that much income in those particular households. Let me bring it back to Ken Eby. Ken. Okay, well, well, thank you, Dale. As I mentioned, I, I'm the executive director and chief development officer of Black Entrepreneurs NYC, or BNYC. So we were launched by the New York City Department of Small Business Services in 2019. And this is really a first-of-its-kind initiative in a large American city to really address the racial wealth gap by empowering Black entrepreneurs and trying to get at some of the structural challenges that Jill just alluded to. So what we're trying to do through our programs is provide pathways to help entrepreneurs and business owners get access to financing, helping to strengthen and build out their professional networks, the, the relational capital that Jill alluded to, and, and provide some, some technical advice and mentorship. And then we're looking at opportunities to really connect Black businesses with real opportunities to scale for long-term success. Most importantly, and I think we're trying to focus on the, the creativity, we're, we're trying to focus on the imagination, really, of the Black community and really thinking about how we can position entrepreneurship, business ownership squarely in the center uh, of economic activity, uh, where there are uh, tremendous opportunities for growth uh, and tremendous focus uh, uh, of this economy. And so we're looking at a number of high growth industries and how to provide on-ramps uh, to those industries. So uh, a big part of this for us, in addition to what we're doing is how we're doing it, and uh, we're, we're leveraging public-private partnerships with the understanding that city government can't do it all. Uh, we don't have all the resources, uh, but we do have connectivity and we do have a uh, delivery system uh, and access to uh, all New Yorkers uh, in, a, in a way that is, is, is really, um, it's second to none. And um, so, so we're trying to address the racial wealth gap. And I, I think, uh, you know, the foundation for all of this work that we're doing uh, and all the work that I, I believe my, my co-panelist is doing is, is it's on the research, it's on the data, the statistics. Uh, and the statistics, you know, really show stark disparities uh, that, that create the, the case for why uh, an initiative like BNYC is absolutely necessary, why focusing on the Black community um, and addressing some of the structural and historical uh, challenges that Black people have faced in starting businesses is essential. Um, and so we, we issued a, a landmark report back in August of 2020, mm -hmm. uh, which indicated that while New Yorkers, uh, uh, Black New Yorkers are 22% of the population, uh, 
we are only 3.5% of the business owners. Uh, that's, that's a really, uh, really stark uh, figure there. Uh, and we've read about the national and historical impacts of systemic racism on, on our economy. Uh, Citigroup report revealed that systemic racism against black Americans has cost the United States about $16 trillion. That's real money. <laughs> real money. About $13 trillion uh, in business revenue never flowed into the economy because uh, black business owners couldn't access bank loans. That's real money. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and you talked about, Ken, you brought up the point of some of the structural biases that just existed and, and they may not have specifically been uh, intentionally put in place, but they were there that led to obviously the barriers of allowing these businesses to have the capital to grow. Is that, is that what you're saying there? Absolutely right. That, mm -hmm. is, that is a critical issue and, and a challenge. And we, you know, just in looking at uh, uh, the work that we did in, in surveying over 1,500 business owners and entrepreneurs, community leaders, um, we, we could say from our survey, uh, unsurprisingly, Dale, uh, access to capital was ranked as the top need by mm. Black business owners and entrepreneurs. 41% uh, of, our, of our survey respondents indicated that this was the top issue, seed capital, uh, you know, having access to low-cost lines of credit, short-term microloans, things of that nature yeah. um, were, were the most popular um, needs identified. Thanks again to our outstanding panelists for joining us on The Great Wealth Divide, where every Wednesday we'll explore and discuss the challenges that have created and perpetuated the extreme wealth gap between white America and the Black and Latinx communities. And a reminder, you can email or call us with any questions you may have or comments. Our email address is tgwd at wbgo.org. And our number is 212-994-9583. That's 212-994-9583. We look forward to hearing from you. Our panelists today on the Great Wealth Divide are Kenneth Eby, Executive Director and Chief Development Officer of Black Entrepreneurs NYC, Jill Johnson, CEO of the Institute for Entrepreneurial Leadership, and Joseph Lightman Santa Cruz, CEO and Executive Director of Capital Area Asset Builders. If we take it back to where we started off with Joseph, which he was explaining the importance of savings and the education around how savings can lead to the beginnings of the buildings of wealth. It's the root of how we get to the point that we can provide education, build businesses, things like that. And then we talked to Jill and she talked about the ability to scale an organization. And when you think about that, it's that access to capital that's so important. And so when we think about access to capital, we, we can tie it all back to the disparity of our a full understanding of the banking system, the importance of savings, and, and how that leads to wealth. And I add this because last year in 2020, data service known as Crunchbase found that Black and Latinx founders of businesses were only able to raise $2.3 billion in venture capital, uh, representing only 2.6% of the total capital raised, venture capital raised, which was $87.3 billion. That's a huge disparity. And I want to get your thoughts, Joseph, if, if I can come back to you, what are your thoughts on, on just the root of some of this? 
Absolutely, Dale. And I really appreciate uh, Ken mentioning the uh, Citigroup uh, report from 2020. $16 trillion were not produced in the American economy because of systemic racist policies, specifically against Black uh, small business owners and Black uh, students and Black families throughout the U.S. during the two-decade period from 2000 to 2020. Again, $16 trillion. Let's all remember that everybody could have benefited from that, regardless of race, ethnicity, immigration status, city, state, doesn't matter. All of us could have benefited. So it's not about only those who were specifically oppressed, but also about the lack of additional revenue that all of us could have benefited from. And we have mentioned before that everybody can benefit throughout our American society if specifically and intentionally we enable for black and brown individuals and families to be lifted out of poverty first, achieve financial stability, and ultimately achieve prosperity. So Dale, when it comes to that foundation, it's not that black and brown communities are illiterate, right? It's not that they need to be taught how to do something. They just need to be given the opportunity to achieve what they already know needs to be done, to uplift the families, to be put in a better socioeconomic status. And that is where systemically, the racist policies need to be eradicated completely. But at the same time, at the grassroots level, we need to be able to make sure that the right transfer of knowledge, the right transfer of capital, and the right transfer of the ability to achieve prosperity is being provided. So one of the key areas that all um, four of us have been discussing is how we need to ensure, and here is where I would like to play the devil's advocate, not only preaching to the choir, right? Not only being uh, having a dialogue amongst like-minded peers, but to expand the base, to, to be able to broaden the tent. We need to present it in a very economic, direct perspective to those who have been racist in the past or those who have simply sat on the fence and believe that they were not part of the conversation. Everybody can benefit by lifting Black and Brown families out of poverty and by enabling them to achieve prosperity. More revenue, more businesses, more employment, more, more home ownership. It's economic growth that enables everybody to benefit. So in very basic real terms, everybody wins when black and brown communities are given the opportunity to achieve stability and prosperity. You know, I'm gonna jump in on something that you just said though. And you just kind of said it in passing, but uh, I think it's a really important point when you mentioned that the root of this is around the lack of savings and just not understanding kind of financial markets and institutions, you know, that sort of thing. Let's be clear for Black folks, this is due to the legacy of slavery. I mean, that is where it starts. I saw a presentation where someone went through the compounding of not having those assets. So if you look at you know, a family back 200 years ago and they own land and then that, the, you know, that was passed on and then they had home ownership post-war and were able to benefit from uh, the, the policies that the government put in place to build the middle class. And then their kids went to school and didn't have debt and all of that. Meanwhile, we're still behind not owning. That is powerful. And so I think that, you know, again, some of these folks that Joseph was just mentioning who have been against policies of inclusion or who have been on the sidelines, for some of them in their minds, it's, well, I worked hard and I got this on my own. Others should mm -hmm. do the same. Well, <laughs> no, you didn't get it on your own. You know, you worked hard, but there was a system in place 
that helped you to acquire those assets. The United States government was very intentional about building a middle class. They were also intentional about building a middle class that did not include black folks. And so, you know, we really have to understand that, that the system around credit and and collateral, that was all meant to be exclusionary. We were never in that equation to begin with. And so the notion that we can even just save our way out of it, that's a start, but we can't save our way toward closing the wealth gap. That Mm. will not happen. And there has to be, you know, a way of (laughs) injecting some capital into Black and Latinx communities so that we can get that, you know, that that jump start toward building uh, greater wealth savings and lifting people out of poverty. But we also have to operate on the other side of lifting people into wealth as well. As you're talking through that, what it brought to me was visions of my trip to South Carolina, where we we actually went and took a plantation tour because we just wanted to see how what they say. What was interesting was this was a plantation that had 75 slaves. And this this particular family was not even considered wealthy. Right. And so you think about that. And then it took me to pictures of thinking through when black wealth was in the process of being built, i.e., Greenwood section of Tulsa, it's totally dismantled. And I begin to wonder what happened to those families from a standpoint of they had businesses, they owned buildings, those buildings were burnt down and totally annihilated, but were the mortgages annihilated? Were they still required to pay on that? Very interesting. We, we have this conflict in America where we want to see progress and development, but that doesn't always, as Jill said, include us, people of color. What makes it worse is because of the mistrust of the banking system. And I um, found this fascinating when I heard it. A lot of people kept their money in mattresses, you know, under the mattress. And so when things were, when the buildings were burned down, not only were the assets lost, but their cash was actually lost as well. Ooh, wow. It's a lot to think about. And, and, and you know, I have to, I'm going to redirect this because I think this is when we come to understanding how we have to continue to educate each other, but also educate others on why there's this, this widened gap and that there is no quick fix to this. And I know that all the work that your organizations are doing, and I know, Jill, you and I have worked with uh, the Rutgers Center for Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development to help provide mentoring and coaching to different levels of entrepreneurs. And I think it's so important that organizations like that exist and that there's funding for that. Um, and I come back to you, Ken, because as you're in the largest cities in the country and one of the, uh, the cities where they say, the city where they say, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. What are we doing to help what are you specifically doing with different partners? I don't know if there's other corporate partners that you're involved with to help lessen this gap that, that we know exists and, and that can assist entrepreneurs. Well, it's a great question, Dale. And, and again, uh, like my fellow co-panelists, what we're doing at the city uh, is we're really focusing on some of these structural issues and challenges. And to, to your point, a couple of our initiatives that we have launched that have been wildly successful and I would say impactful, we're, we're gonna definitely keep doing the longitudinal assessment, are two programs in particular. One which 
is focused on the issue of mentorship. Uh, in January, we launched uh, BNYC Mentors, uh, which is a program for uh, pre-startup and early stage entrepreneurs in the black community. Uh, we are targeting, obviously, black founders, black business owners. We have uh, 16 phenomenal, successful entrepreneurs who are serving as mentors and uh, received a tremendous number of applications for this program. Uh, to this point, uh, over 200 New Yorkers have benefited from mentorship in the form of group mentoring sessions, um, including you know, special uh, panels and Q&A sessions. Uh, we had a round robin mentorship session, which enabled New Yorkers who, who uh, registered to, to have discrete time for uh, knowledge Q&A with a number of mentors in different industries. We're also giving the access to one-on-one -on -one mentorship sessions. And this is really to address the, the issue that, you know, Black entrepreneurs, Black business owners, again, uh, having historically been locked out of access to capital, have traditionally had to launch their ventures from their own savings. And so that has really reduced the margin of error to uh, something that is slim, almost nothing. So these founders, if they fail, which many founders do, they only get one shot. And, uh, and so what this program is doing is trying to uh, connect Black business owners who have not traditionally had access to this type of uh, business guidance to, uh, to successful entrepreneurs who can tell people what mistakes they may encounter early on as they're, they're getting ready to start a business. And so instead of making those mistakes and, and uh, dropping out of the entrepreneurship game, they avoid those mistakes. Uh, they get to the next level, if you will. Uh, and so they're able to continue to grow and, and potentially scale those businesses. So BNYC Mentors is a big one. And then we, we recently launched uh, in April, Dale, the BNYC Startup Intensive, which is an 11-session instructional course. Uh, we are using the fast-track curriculum, which, which some of your listeners may be familiar with. And we have really been focusing on equity in all of our programs. So this course, providing skills, you know, ranging from how do you align your business concept with, with market opportunities? How do you create a, a business pitch? How do you find your target market? Set financial goals for your business and manage your business, the back office functions that make a business successful? And how do you raise funding, right? All of these topics are covered. We have two tracks. One is a general track, and one is focused on women entrepreneurs, as we understand the importance of intersectionality. So uh, this has been, again, wildly successful. Uh, we, we had a tremendous number of applications, and, and it really speaks to the need out there. And we're, we're thinking about adding additional cohorts to this program. So those are a couple of examples of what we're trying to do to address some of these systemic challenges faced by Black business owners. I, I love that because you talked about the solutions that you're providing, the mentorship, the community building the sharing of best practices. I think that those are the, some of the things that are needed to help with providing continuous success. Jill, I know your organization does some things around mentorship as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks for that question. We actually do not refer to what we do as mentorship. We talk about it in the framework of capacity building. Um, there are a lot of great mentorship programs, like Kenneth just said. There are a lot of people doing mentoring. What mentoring generally implies is a conversation, giving some advice, giving some feedback, sharing some insights. The challenge is, is that often the, the entrepreneurs are still left to try to figure out how to do it. 
how to implement it, how to get it done. And if they don't have that uh, core expertise, getting it done can actually still be really tough. And so where our focus is, is uh, around the capacity building, bringing people in who have expertise, who can help the entrepreneur get it done. You need to set up social media. Let's take two hours. Let's get that social media actually set up. Let's get it going so that at the end of that two hours, you're, you're on and popping. You're ready to start you know, sending out your tweets and all that. You're on Hootsuite, whatever it is. We also have a real focus on relationship capital connections, as I mentioned in my introduction, making those connections that facilitate not only knowledge transfer, but help get doors opened so that it opens the door to getting a contract or opens the door to getting capital. So much is based on relationships. I know you, I know somebody else puts you together and it happens because there is a transference of the no like trust relationship. And that's what we want to see more of. The people that say that diversity is so important and that inclusion matters, well, you know, go take action. You know, we need the folks that are the allies uh, or that proclaim to be allies to actually act and to do and to open doors for Black and Brown entrepreneurs. I love it because you talked about the relationships and the networking that's important. I want to come back to you, Joseph, because a lot of things you guys are doing are is education, but also there's some innovation involved. Can you talk a little bit about the innovation? Absolutely. Thanks, Dale. So um, just as uh, Ken referred to mentorship and Jill referred to as capacity building, we would refer to it as financial coaching. So it's about working together with each individual client and First, ensuring that we are addressing any time-sensitive matters that they're bringing to our attention, but at the same time, ensuring that we provide the context and the background on what else they might be able to do if they choose to go that route. So whether it's uh, first-time homeownership, launching a small business, paying for college, uh, paying down debt, setting up a retirement account, et cetera. So it's that dignity of first trusting the client with what she or he wants to be doing. But at the same time, the dignity of saying, hey, these are the best practices of how affluent people throughout the U.S. are able to achieve wealth and transfer that wealth to the next generation. Um, we also focus on uh, both the transfer of knowledge, the ability to achieve a goal, but then transfer of capital. So that's where we are partnering with philanthropic partners, with uh, government agencies, specifically the DC government, as well as private sector partners. It truly takes a village to ensure that multiple stakeholders come together to give that opportunity for financial stability. So this is a great uh, shout out to all the partners that we have and also a great call to action that those private sector entities currently not involved in directly and intentionally addressing to minimize the racial wealth gap, it behooves you to be involved. It is not only great PR, but it's also a great community engagement to ensure that your clients, your prospects, your stakeholders live a better life. Again, coming back to why should this be of interest to those who are not directly involved? Because you too benefit from wealth being created in this nation. The wealthier off we are, the better off we are. And something that Ken and I discuss about this um, uh, $16 trillion being lost over the last 20 years, 
if we eradicate the systemic oppression specifically against African-American small business owners and potential home buyers and potential college uh, students, it is estimated in that same study that our economy would grow by another $5 trillion over the next five years. $5 trillion over the next five years, again, would benefit everybody throughout the US. So once again, it's keeping it very simple and keeping it very real. We all win when black and brown communities are given the opportunity to achieve stability and prosperity. That says it all. When black and brown, black and Latinx communities are fully engaged in this economic system that we have, not only does all benefit, but even gross domestic product, GDP, has an opportunity to grow, which puts us in a better position globally. So when you think about that, guys, we, we have some very interesting topics. I'm going to ask you this last thing from each of you, and I'll start with Jill, is there seems to be so many things that are out there for not only entrepreneurs, but for individuals to gain a better understanding and a better grasp of things that will help them grow and, and build wealth. How can we get in touch with you and your organization? And I'll, I'll go from Jill, we'll go Ken, we'll end with Joseph. For us, people can reach out to us through our website. Uh, that's probably the easiest way. We are ifall.org. We also have uh, brand sites for each of our three brands. Well, Women of Color Connecting is wocon, W-O-C-C-O-N.org, Small Businesses Need Us and makingblackangels.org. All those are are .orgs. And we just hope that people get involved because systems change when individuals change first. And it's individuals who change the systems. So we need folks to get off the sidelines, get involved and make a difference. Okay. As we all know, the gravity of of the pandemic, in particular on New York City's 240,000 small businesses uh, required a tremendous amount of federal help the impact on Black-owned businesses was even more extreme. And so we're we're fortunate that our federal partners stepped up and provided certain uh, resources. We're making those accessible to New Yorkers through the Department of Small Business Services. So in terms of outreach on a number of items, a number of programs, such as a small business loan program, small business grant program, all sorts of other resources through our Business Solutions Center, uh, I encourage everyone to uh, go to our website, which is www.nyc.gov forward slash SBS. And for the specific financing assistance, people can go to www.nyc.gov forward slash financing assistance or call our hotline, which is 888-SBS-4NYC. That's 888-SBS, the number four, NYC for more information. And I should add as well, uh, very specifically for Black business owners and Black entrepreneurs, the BNYC program is here to help. And, uh, you know, as I said before, uh, if you want to run far, uh, you run together and we want to be part of your team. So please check out what we're doing, get involved and get updates by going to www.nyc.gov forward slash BENYC. Thank you, Ken. And Joseph. Thank you, Dale. Uh, for CAV, our website is caab.org. You can also send us an email message to info at caab.org. And Dale, as we start to see the economic recovery in this post-pandemic environment, let's please all remember that traditionally throughout economic recoveries in the U.S., 
low to moderate income families, primarily black and Latinx families do not get to benefit at the same rate as everybody else. So as all of us, and I have been privileged to be fully employed and to be fully housed uh, and have a full um, system over the last 14 months, those families that we intentionally want to achieve prosperity will not be benefiting at the same level as everybody else. So we still have a significant amount of work to do in the coming years. As the economy goes back to a pre-pandemic state, those families that we're talking about will probably be many years away from recovering going back to the February 2020. So the work ahead of us is of significance. And we invite folks who are interested in getting our assistance to contact us. But we also invite folks, organizations, other entities that would like to partner or uh, support us to also be in contact. We want to find out how collectively we can be creating a solution. Let me thank each of you. Joseph Lightman Santa Cruz, CEO and Executive Director of Capital Area Asset Builders. Kenneth Eby, Executive Director and Chief Development Officer, Black Entrepreneurs NYC and Jill Johnson, CEO, Institute for Entrepreneurial Leadership. I think the discussion and the information that we're sharing with our audience is so important, and we could not do this without your thought leadership. Thank you. The Great Wealth Divide podcast series is sponsored by J.P. Morgan Chase, who has made a global commitment to breaking down barriers to drive inclusive economic growth. They're investing in communities across the country, communities that we all have come from, that we all have family in, to create economic opportunities. They've committed $30 billion over the next five years to advance racial equity and to address key drivers of the racial wealth divide. So we appreciate our sponsor and we thank you. And you can always find more about our sponsor, JP Morgan, at jpmorganchase.com slash path forward. The Great Wealth Divide is a WBGO Studios production. Mike Sargent is our producer. Eric Wynn is the creator of The Great Wealth Divide and executive producer. I'm your host, Dale Favors. And don't forget to join us next Wednesday for the third episode of The Great Wealth Divide podcast series from WBGO Studios. Look for us wherever you listen to or download your podcast and at WBGO.org.